Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries Podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. As a history buff, I'm constantly coming across stories that are interesting, but too short to make a full episode. So I'm dedicating this episode to a collection of shorter stories. I think you'll enjoy listening to and even retelling some of these stories I've picked out. If you enjoy this Believe It or Not episode, let us know in a review to 1001 Heroes, and we'll do more of them just as we've done in the past with 11 of our Urban Legends episodes. Our first story is called The Lawn Chair Larry Flight, and this is, believe it or not, a true story. In 1982, a truck driver from Los Angeles named Larry Walters made a 45-minute flight in a homemade flying device comprised of a patio chair and 45 helium balloons. Soaring into the sky had been a 20-year dream for him ever since he was 13 years old and had spotted a weather balloon in an Army-Navy surplus store. Fast forward to 1982, when dreams were about to become a reality, with a little, make that, a lot of help from his friends. He had been chewing the fat with some friends at a local bar, speculating how many balloons it would take to lift a man into the sky. Flying was a long-held dream of his. The Air Force had turned him down due to poor eyesight, and now, he said, was his chance. For most of us, the story would end with a clink of beer glasses and some reasonable thinking once our heads cleared. But Larry started looking for balloons and found that what he needed was the kind that scientists launch into the atmosphere to research the weather. So he asked his girlfriend, Carol Van Dusen, to get busy looking for them. They poured over research into ballooning and weather balloons in particular, and with her help purchased 45 8-foot weather balloons. They then obtained helium tanks from California Toy Time Balloons. They used a forged requisition from his employer, Filmfare Studios, saying the balloons were for a television commercial. It was originally their idea to do this in the Mojave Desert, but the launch site moved to the roof of Carol's house, which she said was much closer to the hospital. Just in case. On July 2nd, 1982, Larry filled the balloons with helium from the tanks and attached them to his lawn chair, which was ballasted with plastic water bottles. The balloons were arranged in three tiers above him. They had done their homework, he and his girlfriend, as to how best to distribute the balloons. They tested the lawn chair and set it back 45 degrees. It would be impossible at that angle to fall forward out of it. He brought along an air pistol with enough power to break the balloon should he need to lower his altitude. This in addition to a CB radio, some sandwiches, a camera, a parachute, he had taken a course on parachuting, an altimeter to measure his altitude, which he wore on a lanyard around his neck, and beer. The moment came for liftoff when he told his buddies, who were volunteering as his assistants, to let go of the mooring lines holding him back. A central tether line of 500-pound tensile strength was attached to something in the yard, probably a tree. History doesn't tell us. As luck would have it, a strong gust of wind came out of nowhere, and the tether snapped, sounding like a gunshot when it did and his pals dropped their mooring lines, not wanting to leave this earth behind, and you can't blame them. Larry was heading for the clouds as the wind lifted him quickly. Way too quickly. 1,000 feet per every 60 seconds, and the minutes were flying by. As he drifted up, anyone looking at the sky at that moment saw a man sitting in a nylon web lawn chair beneath 45 white balloons disappearing up into the clouds. He radioed his pals on the ground, saying... I can see Marineland, and I'm going to notify LAX. Over. He had soon drifted from the sky over San Pedro, California, to controlled airspace near Long Beach Airport. Now he was getting very nervous. 
he had quickly passed 6,000 feet, then 12,000 feet, and he was now at 16,000 feet. If you're shaking your head with disbelief, I was too, but this is all documented. He could no longer reach his pals. Two commercial airlines had spotted him, Delta and TWA. He shot out some of the outer balloons in an effort to lower his altitude, knowing that at 20,000 feet, finding oxygen would be a real problem. He got in contact with REACT, a citizens' band radio monitoring organization, who recorded the conversation. This was a part of it. REACT, what information do you wish to tell the airport at this time as to your location and your difficulty? Larry, uh, the difficulty is, uh, this was an unauthorized balloon launch, and, uh, I know I'm in federal airspace, and, uh, I'm sure my ground crew has alerted the proper authority, but... Uh, just call them and tell them I'm okay. Now the wind had pushed him out over Long Beach and he was descending. After 45 minutes in the sky, Walters had shot several balloons, taking care not to unbalance the load. He then accidentally dropped his air gun overboard, but fortunately he had shot just enough of the balloons to provide him with a slow descent. He came down slowly until the balloon's dangling cables got caught in a power line at 432 East 45th Street in Long Beach. The power line broke, causing a 20-minute electricity blackout. Larry Walters landed unharmed on the ground, his dream finally realized. As you might expect, the Long Beach Police Department was waiting for him. Safety Inspector Neil Savoy was quoted to have said, We know he broke some part of the Federal Aviation Act, and as soon as we decide which part it is, some type of charge will be filed. Larry ended up paying a $1,500 fine. It would have been much more... But the judge was lenient. After all, this was L.A. The press was waiting for him, too, when he landed, and this is what he told them. It was something I had to do, he said. I had this dream for 20 years, and if I hadn't done it, I think I would have ended up in the funny farm. Ten days after his flight, Walters appeared on David Letterman, who showed video of Larry going up in the lawn chair and asked all the questions you or I might have thought to ask, one of which was, were you belted in? Larry answered all the questions, clearly indicating that he and his girlfriend had studied every angle of this to make sure he could do it without killing himself. No, Larry answered. I wasn't strapped in in any way. The chair was set back at a 45-degree angle, and it was impossible to fall out. And it couldn't be flipped. We looked at baskets, etc., but the chair seemed the safest and best. I'm not going to name the department store where we bought it because I've already given them too much publicity. After Letterman, Larry's popularity soared. He dropped his current job, and he became a motivational speaker. You know, the if-you-can-dream-it-you-can-do-it type of speaking. After a while, his popularity faded. As he drifted out of the public limelight, he picked up some temporary jobs as a security guard. A movie was made of his flight, and dozens of copycats took to the skies. Today, Larry the Longier pilot is pretty much obscure history, and sadly... Larry only lived another 13 years or so. But the chair he piloted beyond the clouds lives on at the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. And I think we're safe in thinking that Larry would be happy knowing that. While we're on the subject of things falling from the sky, here's a story of how a young blind man regained his sight by virtue of what you would have to call a very lucky coincidence or a miracle. I'll leave it to you to choose. The young man's name was Paulo, and he lived in South America. He was visiting his cousins in Rio de Janeiro for New Year's Eve and enjoying an outdoor street party as Rio ushered in a brand new year. 
Once the clock struck midnight, fireworks shot across the sky, and as he smelled the sulfur and heard the explosions of fireworks mixed with the occasional sound of guns firing, he felt a stab of pain in his head and saw a flash of colors just before blacking out. When the boy woke up in the hospital, he received two large surprises. He was shown a metal object covered in blood that he had sneezed out, and that object was a bullet. The bullet, no doubt having been shot off by partiers into the sky, had fallen down, hitting Paulo on top of the head, entering his skull, passing behind his eyes, and nicking a nerve just before lodging in his nostril. The nicking of the nerve restored Paulo's eyesight for the first time in his life, and did not cause any permanent damage as it passed through his head. Talk about lucky. It sort of sounds like it was meant to be. We've done a few stories and interviews on the sinking of the Titanic at 1001 Heroes and 1001 Stories for the Road, and they're easy to find by searching our archives, and they're interesting. Here are a few strange coincidences from the Titanic story that I missed and thought you might enjoy. A British newspaper editor named W.T. Stead had actually predicted the future when, some years before the Titanic sank, he wrote a story about a steamer that sank in the Atlantic after colliding with another vessel causing many casualties. Stead accurately predicted that, quote, this is exactly what might take place and what will take place if liners are sent to sea short of lifeboats. He also wrote a novel that describes another vessel sinking in the Atlantic. This time the survivors were rescued by an ocean liner of the White Star Line. You guessed it, the company that later built and owned the Titanic. Something was very likely nagging at Stead's subconscious, something with knowledge of the future. It was Edgar Cayce who once said in one of his readings that man's soul has access to all knowledge, past and future. And many people believe that's true. The problem is how to access it. Or do we really want to know when and how we will die? Fortunately, we as humans are protected from that knowledge. In 1912, British-born Stead was invited by President Taft to speak in America, where he expected to pick up an award, and he booked his passage across the Atlantic Aboard the ship, they said, was unsinkable. The Titanic. When disaster ultimately struck, Stead, one of the most famous Englishmen on the ship, is said to have given away his life jacket and helped women and children onto the lifeboats. Those same lifeboats whose shortage he had predicted years earlier. It must have seemed a cruel irony to him. Like many others, he survived the sinking, but not the water. He clung to a life raft in the frigid water for several hours before freezing to death. Others had more luck, or perhaps not. British engineer John Priest survived the sinking of the Titanic in 1912 as that of her sister ship Britannic in 1916, and that of the ships Alcantara and Donegal during World War I. All this earned him the nickname the Unsinkable Stoker. By the way, he lived until 1937. Violet Jessup, a nurse who had survived the sinking of the Titanic, also lived through accidents involving two other White Star Line ships, the collision of the Olympic with the HMS Hawk in 1911 and the sinking of the Britannic in 1916. And who was in charge of movies in the new movie theater which had been installed on the Titanic? There probably weren't that many movies to choose from back in those early days. Some people in first class were watching an early silent version of the Poseidon Adventure when the Titanic hit the iceberg. Truth is often stranger than fiction. We'll return with lots more stories right after these sponsor messages. 
Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. And now back to our story. I did a part of my growing up in the Philadelphia area and went to my first pro ball game in Connie Mack Stadium there. One of the Phillies' most beloved players and later announcers was now Hall of Famer Richie Ashburn. Richie was voted All-Star for six seasons during his career and won the batting title for two seasons. He was a player's player and liked and respected by everyone, including the press. Richie had an awesome ability to foul off pitches, which helped to keep him at bat until the pitcher finally tired and threw him when he could hit, which is why in the 50s he had more base hits than any other player in the National League. And these were mostly singles, which he could place anywhere a hole existed. Left, center, right, it didn't matter. His foul balls generally were line drives to the left of the third baseline, and sometimes he could foul off three, four, or even five pitches to pretty much the same area in the stands. For the most part, the Philly fans in that area stayed alert whenever Richie came to the plate, as they didn't want to be caught stuffing a hot dog in their mouth or taking a drink from a cup when a line drive hit them in the face. During a game on August 17, 1957, Ashburn hit a foul ball into the stands to the left of third base that struck spectator Alice Roth, wife of Philadelphia Bulletin sports editor Earl Roth, breaking her nose. The Connie Mack medical team was immediately alerted and two men came down to the box seats carrying a stretcher as she was knocked almost unconscious. Play on the field was stopped for a few minutes as the medics gently loaded Mrs. Roth onto the stretcher and began carrying her away from her box seat. The audience applauded and then turned their attention back to the game. Alice had just regained her senses when she heard the crack of a bat hitting a ball and she was struck again, this time in the leg, by another one of Ashburn's foul balls which broke a small bone near her knee. Her two grandsons had accompanied her to the game, and they were obviously upset on her behalf, but one of them, Preston, who was eight, had the presence of mind to ask another fan, a man, near the box, who had grabbed the first foul ball, if he would please give him the ball which had hit his grandma. But the man flatly refused his request. No wonder Philly's fans have such bad reputations. I don't know if they do today, but they did for years. The day was not a complete loss for the boys, as they received free tickets to another game, a tour of the clubhouse, and baseball signed by the Phillies team, which was pretty decent in the Phillies. Richie Ashburn felt terrible about the incident and brought flowers to Alice Roth while she was recovering in the hospital. Ashburn and the Roth family maintained a friendship for many years, and the Roth's son later served as a Phillies bat boy. Now that's an honor as a kid to serve as a bat boy or bat girl for a pro team. There's another Richie Ashburn story I'd like to share, and that was when they brought Elio Chasson, a Venezuelan, onto the team as a shortstop. Richie was playing center, and the idea then was for the center fielder to call off the shortstop on a ball hit into the shallow outfield if he knew he could catch that fly ball that was falling between the two, the theory being that it's easier to catch a dropping ball when you're running forward to catch it than when running backward trying to catch it over your shoulder. The two had collided a number of times despite Richie's calling him off. Finally, teammate Joe Christopher informed Ashburn that Chasson couldn't speak a word of English, and Ashburn's, I got it, wasn't registering. 
"'so he taught Ashburn to call "'Yola Tengo, "'and that seemed to work. "'But soon came the day "'when left fielder Frank Thomas "'and Ashburn collided "'after Ashburn called out "'Yola Tengo. "'When the Sheik and Frank Thomas got up, "'he said to Ashburn, "'What the hell is Yellow Tango?' "'I'm not sure what you did for entertainment as a kid, "'but it was probably pretty mild "'compared to what this kind of kids did "'at a California amusement park. "'It was Halloween, and it was the 70s, "'which I always think of as being exploited "'by wild kids who had felt robbed "'for missing out on the 60s. "'Anyway, this bunch of young delinquents, "'as the story goes, "'dared each other to go into the House of Horrors, "'which they did, and finding that to be too tame, they hatched a plan to stay in the House of Horrors overnight. So they hid away and waited until the park closed. Inside the House of Horrors, with no one there, it was getting pretty scary. One kid, probably the Fonzie of the group, had brought a bottle of hooch, of which they all partook, and they soon fell asleep. One kid woke up apart from the others, and finding himself alone in the dark and without his buddies, started stumbling around the labyrinth, all the while acting like he wasn't scared just looking for a door. Soon he bumped into a body which was wrapped up like a mummy which was hanging above him. He sort of choked out a scream, which alerted one of his mates, who, smiling, crept up behind him, no doubt planning to give his pal the ultimate scare and push him over the edge into insanity. With a loud, Boo! He scared the pants off his buddy, who bumped into the hanging mummy, which broke the rope by which it was hanging, causing the mummy to fall to the floor on top of both boys. In the process, one of the mummy's arms came loose. At that point, both boys realized that the mummy wasn't a prop. It was a real body. An arm had come loose from its wrapping, exposing real human skin and a hand, mummified, but real nonetheless. Now they panicked, which woke up their other pals, who were now all running wildly around the inside of the House of Horrors looking for a door, but all the walls were painted black. And not being able to find a door, they finally broke through a wall. When they got back to town, they informed the local sheriff, who didn't believe a word of it, but couldn't help wonder why they'd come to him, as they must have known they would get into major trouble for trespassing in the amusement park and destroying property. So the sheriff got their names and visited the amusement park the next day himself. He found the operator, and together they found the mummy line, arm akimbo, on the floor of the House of Horror, and started unwrapping it. The face came first, and yes, this was a real dead person who had been mummified. The skin was stretched across the skull and body like old paper parchment, and several teeth were still in the skull. Now the sheriff had a dead body on his hands, which was going to require some investigation. The operator of the attraction was immediately suspected as the perpetrator of some grisly crime, but he was mortified upon finding that his prop was a real human, and he didn't seem like the kill and mummify for profit type. He explained that he had bought the mummy from a sideshow operator who had jokingly told him that it was real. This, of course, had to be a joke. Right, officer? The sheriff had the body autopsied, and that showed the body to be that of a man who had died of bullet wounds somewhere near the beginning of the 20th century. Further investigation revealed the identity as being that of outlaw Elmer McCurdy, who died in 1911 in a shootout with the law after a botched train robbery, during which McCurdy was said to have quoted... You'll never take me alive. Well, that might have been true, but a long afterlife was still in store for McCurdy. A mortician embalmed his body after nobody had claimed it for burial and put the preserved cadaver on display as a demonstration of his embalming abilities, which they were allowed to do back in those days. 
Elmer's corpse became a sort of tourist attraction, and he became a sort of hero as a bandit who never gave up. Finally, a man pretending to be Elmer's long-lost brother showed up, asking if he could give Elmer a decent burial. But actually, the man was a sideshow huckster who had other plans for Elmer. For more than 50 years, Elmer's body was displayed at traveling tent shows. It was bought and sold any number of times, except once when a sideshow operator refused to buy him on account of his not being realistic enough. So when all of this got cleared up, the sheriff asked the county to put Elmer to rest for good. They poured concrete over his coffin and finally ended Elmer's odyssey as the outlaw who would never give up. His one regret, if he had one, was that he never received a penny for all those public appearances. Well, the next time you find your restaurant or store needs an attention-getting display, just turn on those illuminated flower pots, and wow, the customers will flock to your establishment in record numbers. At least that's what inventor Joshua L. Cowan thought when he designed a slender metal tube with batteries in the middle and a light bulb on the end. The idea ended up making a fortune, but not for Cowan. The problem was that a bunch of people were coming up with the idea of a battery-operated flashlight, which they called then a flash lamp, in those early days, and everybody was lawyering up to sue each other for patent rights and patent protection. Cowan wanted no part of that, so he sold his idea to Conrad Hubert, who didn't care a whit about lighted flower pots. He wanted to put that light into people's hands. Hubert started the American Everready Company, and the rest is history with regard to flashlights and Everready batteries. But Joshua L. Cowan was just getting started. He had a real passion for railroad trains, and after designing a tiny electric motor for a miniature fan, he realized that if he could do this for a fan, why not a miniature train? He started selling miniature trains to shopkeepers as window displays, which they used to attract attention from passerbys. But then the customers started asking, Are those trains for sale? Sure they were. And Joshua L. Cowan started raking in the profits as those little trains started selling by the hundreds and then the thousands. By the way, that L in Joshua L. Cowan's name was Lionel. And the rest is history. You've probably never heard of Mary Edwards Walker, who was born in 1832 in Oswego, New York. Those of you ladies who enjoy all the personal freedoms that men do owe her a debt of gratitude for what she went through to earn the right to wear long pants and become doctors or whatever else they wanted to be, short of being sumo wrestlers. There must have been something in the groundwater in upstate New York back in those years because women up there were fighting for rights all the time. Their rights and everyone else's, including slave rights. Anyway, at 16, Mary was teaching school in New York City and she decided one day she was going to wear trousers. You know, long pants. This, in Victorian society, was a no-no. It was worse than that. It was scandalous. Women snubbed her or sent in complaints. Kids, probably at the behest of their mothers, pelted her with eggs. It didn't stop her. Although the professions were closed to women, Mary got her doctorate in medicine from Syracuse University at the age of 23. She married another physician in 1855, and she kept her own name. Whoa! Together they started a medical practice in Rome, New York, but the public wasn't ready for a female doctor. So their business suffered, and the marriage suffered with it. At the outbreak of the Civil War, Mary tried to join the Army, but was denied a commission as a medical officer. She then volunteered and became an assistant surgeon, the first woman surgeon in the U.S. Army. For the next two years, she worked as a field surgeon, caring for the casualties from the battles of Fredericksburg, Chattanooga, and Chickamauga. 
1863, Major General George Thomas appointed Mary assistant surgeon with the rank of major in the 52nd Ohio Infantry based in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where she donned a slightly modified Union uniform and sported two pistols at all times, more for self-protection than battlefield use, however. She was known to wander across lines to help care for wounded civilians as needed. Her tendency to cross lines, though, started some nasty rumors that she was spying, and she was taken prisoner by Confederates in April of 1864. But she was soon exchanged in what she later termed was a man-for-man exchange for a Confederate major, and returned to her medical work, but this time far from the front lines. In light of her work, she was recommended for the Medal of Honor for her service saving lives and was given the only Medal of Honor to be awarded to a woman on November 11, 1865. After the war, Mary became a writer and toured the lecture circuit speaking out on behalf of women's rights. She was arrested numerous times for masquerading as a man and used those court appearances to speak on behalf of the Bloomer Girls, a group of women who advocated for women's rights and the wearing of trousers. After arguing a case before Congress, she fell down the Capitol steps, which began a nasty slide in her health, and she died two years later, but not before telling the men who revoked her medal, which she did not earn by fighting, that if they wanted to take her medal, they'd have to take it over her dead body. She was buried with the medal soon after, and no, they didn't take it. Mary Edwards Walker had won the medal and the battle, and she must have smiled when in 1977, President Jimmy Carter restored her medal officially to her. Many objects end up in museums because their owners think the world should see them. Some items are sold to museums, some are donated. Some end up in museums because they're thought to be cursed, like the Hope Diamond and certain Egyptian artifacts. The Natural History Museum in London has thousands of artifacts in its possession, all of them coming with interesting stories. In an area they call the Vault, the gemstones are safely ensconced. They all have stories of how they got there, but one has a very unusual story. It's a purple amethyst, which was described by its owner as terribly accursed and stained with blood and the dishonor of everyone who has ever owned it. This amethyst gemstone, which we're calling the blood amethyst, first came to the museum in 1940, donated by the donor's daughter, along with a letter from her father, Edward Heron Allen, dated 1904, and addressed to whomever shall be the future possessor. The letter explains that the amethyst was stolen from an ancient Indian temple in the 19th century and brought to England by an officer in the Bengal cavalry who, after coming into possession of the stone, lost his health and all his money. It passed along to his son, who wisely gave it to another person, unfortunately a friend, who committed suicide soon after receiving it, but not before bequeathing it back to the giver in his will. In 1890 he gave the stone to Heron Allen, a noted London lawyer naturalist, Persian scholar, and spiritualist, which would seem like the ideal person to give a cursed stone to. Unfortunately, he was troubled with all kinds of misfortunes after receiving the amethyst, until he bound the stone with a double-headed snake symbol, with which he claimed to have temporarily stalled the curse, if indeed it was a curse. Heron Allen kept the stone in his library, where both he and his friends saw the ghost of a Hindu holy man thought to be searching for the stone. That shook him up, not wanting to see the holy man wander in his house, Heron Allen threw the gem into a canal, hoping to see the last of it, but somehow it was dredged up and returned to him by a dealer to whom it had been offered, and who knew it belonged to Heron Allen. When Heron Allen had a child, 
"'He wanted to protect her from the stone, "'so he hid it away inside seven boxes "'strewn with protective charms "'and secured it in a bank vault. "'I know what you're thinking. "'The bank burned down. "'It didn't, and the stone stayed there "'along with its letter of warning, "'and when he died in 1944, "'the stone went to his daughter, "'who promptly donated it "'to the Natural Museum of History.' There, the jewel lay in a dark corner for years and was basically forgotten by the museum until 2007, when it was rediscovered and put on display. Soon there were rumblings among the museum staff that the stone had not lost its power. The gem curator decided to take the stone to a meeting of the Heron Allen Society when he encountered a terrifying local storm that nearly killed him. A year later he tried again, but that time became very ill. From that time on, the stone has been kept behind glass and the blood amethyst has become something of a museum legend. There used to be a running joke that the Ford letters, F-O-R-D, were an acronym standing for Found on the Road Dead. Ford was the favorite of notorious bank robber Clyde Barrow, of Bonnie and Clyde fame, who was known for three things. His use of a BAR rifle during holdups, his ability to evade the police, and his insatiable appetite for taunting the police by running his own PR campaign through the newspapers. Recently, a letter Barrow had written to Henry Ford surfaced, extolling the virtues of Ford's V8 engine. Bonnie and Clyde loved the Ford's V8s they stole because they were fast and could outrun most police cars. His letter read, While I've still got breath in my lungs, I will tell you what a dandy car you make. I have drove Fords exclusively when I could get away with one. For sustained speed and freedom from trouble, the Ford has got every other car skinned, and even if my business hasn't been strictly legal, it don't hurt anything to tell you what a fine car you have in the V8. Yours truly, Clyde Champion Barrow. Henry Ford received the letter just one month before the law finally caught up with Bonnie and Clyde on a lonely Louisiana back road. When the smoke cleared, they were truly found on the road dead. Why is it always college students who wind up doing dumb things? How many movies have you seen where the bad guy or guys rolled up the body in a carpet then donned carpet shop uniforms and carried the carpet out to a waiting van. Maybe those are old movies, but it seems like the idea has been tried. So here we are. It's not a George Raft movie. It's the 1980s, and three college students in New York City are walking back to their apartment on Manhattan's west side when they notice a carpet rolled up on the pavement. They look high and low, but there's no one around. There's no waiting van. And they needed a carpet. So without a thought that they might be doing something illegal or wrong, or getting a carpet that was being thrown out for who knows what reason, they pick it up and carry it back to their apartment. All the way they complain about how heavy it is, and it kind of smelled, but one of them kept saying, that weight just means it's good quality, you know? Real thick pile. Another one said, we probably need to clean it. The third one said, you think? When they got back to their apartment, they struggled to get it in the elevator and then into their narrow door. At last the moment came when they rolled it out. Inside it was a dead body, the body of a man who had been shot in the head. The three stood gawking at the body, speechless, but only for a moment. After all, this was New York. The first one said, Holy crap! The second one said, What'll we do? Should we get it out of here? We could be in big trouble. For a moment nobody could get a word in edgewise. Then the third one wisely said, we got to call the police. And they did. The investigating cops later said of the three young men, they thought they were going to decorate their little dorm room. They probably lost their enthusiasm for interior decorating quickly after that. 
Our last story is a reprisal of a story we did for Urban Legends a few years ago. At that time, we called it The English Professor. It received a lot of comments, and I resolved to bring it back one day for your enjoyment. There are some suggested profanities in it, which I'll shorten with contractions, but still, there will be some cussing, so be forewarned. This is called The Tandem Story. Below is the result of a writing assignment given by an English professor from the University of Colorado. A tandem story was to be written by two students, one male, one female. The story was to be compiled in alternating paragraphs via email, with CCs to the professor. There was to be no communication between the writers aside from each successive email. The story would end when both participants agreed a successful conclusion had been achieved. The Story First Paragraph by Rebecca. At first, Lori couldn't decide what kind of tea she wanted. The chamomile, which used to be her favorite for lazy evenings at home, now reminded her too much of Carl, who once said, in happier times, that he liked chamomile, but she felt she must now, at all costs, keep her mind off Carl. His possessiveness was suffocating, and if she thought about him too much, her asthma started acting up again. So chamomile was out of the question. Second paragraph by Jerry. Meanwhile, Advanced Sergeant Carl Harris, leader of the attack squadron now in orbit over Skylon 4, had more important things to think about than the neuroses of an air-headed asthmatic, tea-drenched bimbo named Lori, with whom he had spent one sweaty night over a year ago. A.S. Harris to Geostation 17, he said into his transgalactic communicator. Polar orbit established. No sign of resistance so far. A bluish particle beam flashed out of nowhere and blasted a hole through his ship's cargo bay. The jolt from the direct hit sent him flying out of his seat and across the cockpit. Third paragraph, Rebecca. He died almost immediately, but not before he felt one last pang of regret for psychically brutalizing the one woman who ever had feelings for him. Soon afterward, Earth stopped pointless hostilities toward the peaceful farmers of Skylon 4. Congress passes law permanently abolishing war and space travel, Lori read online one morning. The news simultaneously excited and bored her. She stared out the window, dreaming of her youth, when the days had passed unhurriedly and carefree, with no cell phones, no internet to distract her from her sense of innocent wonder at the beauty around her. Why must one lose one's innocence to become a woman? She pondered wistfully. Paragraph 4, Jerry. Little did she know she had less than ten seconds to live. The wimpy peaceniks who pushed the unilateral aerospace disarmament treaty through Congress had left Earth a defenseless target for hostile empires determined to destroy the human race. Just hours after the passage of the treaty, alien ships were on course for Earth with enough firepower to pulverize the entire planet. Their lithium fusion missiles entered the atmosphere unimpeded. The President, in his top-secret mobile submarine headquarters on the ocean floor off the coast of Guam, was rocked by the inconceivably massive explosion which vaporized poor, stupid Lori. Paragraph 5, Rebecca. This is absurd. I refuse to continue this mockery of literature. My writing partner is a violent, chauvinistic, semi-literate adolescent geek. Jerry. Yeah? Well, my writing partner is a self-centered, tedious neurotic whose attempts at writing are the literary equivalent of Valium. Oh, shall I have chamomile tea? Or shall I have some other effing tea? Oh, no. What am I to do? I'm an airheaded bimbo who reads too many romance novels. Rebecca. A-hole. Jerry. B-itch. Rebecca. F you, you Neanderthal. Jerry. In your dreams. Oh, 
Go drink some more effing tea. Rebecca, I hate you. Don't ever talk to me again. Teacher, A+. plus. I really like this one. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, please do share with friends and send us a positive review. Reviews help new listeners find us, and they tell us a lot about you, our listeners, where you're from, and why you enjoy our show. I started 1001 Heroes back in December of 2014, so we're going on year seven now, and I can say it's been a terrific journey. As most of you are aware, the 1001 Stories Podcast Network has blossomed into a number of different shows, including 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, 1001 Stories for the Road, 1001 Greatest Love Stories, 1001 Sherlock Holmes Stories, 1001 Radio Days, 1001 Stories from the Old West, and others. 1001 Heroes is the one for which I do all the writing and research on topics that interest me, and the others are narrated from classic literature or other sources, with the exception of our classic radio shows. I do this full-time, and I love what I do. We are supported by advertisers and by our patrons, who pledge a few dollars each month at patreon.com forward slash 1001 Stories Network to help us out. Those of you who do this are appreciated more than you'll ever know, as are those of you who listen and those who take the extra time to leave reviews for us and to share with others. And to you regulars who have reviewed a few times, especially when we really needed them, I appreciate your having my back. Some of you have been there since year one. Oh, we had a lot to learn on that ladder. Our first month, we struggled to get 100 listens. Now we receive over half a million unique listens per month and growing. What a journey, and what a fantastic group of listeners you all are from all over the world and with so many backgrounds. We have moms and dads, professors, generals and privates, admirals, lieutenant commanders, and ensigns, museum curators, painters, dog walkers, church pastors, all ages, writers of all types, cowboys, truck drivers, historians, grass cutters, students, entrepreneurs, retired individuals and couples, and I'm just scratching the surface. Some let me know that in reviews. Others message me at Facebook slash 1001heroes, which I'm always slow in getting to. Some email me at 1001storiespodcast at gmail.com. And some offer me stays at condos, and I'll be getting back to you in Colorado soon. Travel's hard for me, though, due to the time I devote to getting these shows out nearly every week. For those of you who haven't searched the archives for each of these shows, I encourage you to do so. We're evergreen, meaning our shows are not dated. They never get old. Now, some of my 2015 and 2016 episodes sound a little sketchy now, looking back, but they're still good. I would love to have a conversation someday about some of my favorites and your favorites and how the idea to do them reached me. But who to talk to? I just find the research very exciting and especially like to explore the footnotes. That's where many of the real gems pop up. Well, I'm getting too talkative here. Suffice it to say, you are all appreciated. Thank you for listening. We are humbly grateful. And stay safe out there. We'll be back soon.